When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Dan Feldman of Dunked on Prime and The Daily Dunks, and we do a lot of a lot of different parts of conversations here, in part because th- this is a unusual section in the NBA season. You have the trade deadline, which is already completed. You have the All-Star break, which is now upon us. Dan and I recorded this on Monday. I'm traveling a little bit right now, so it was a little bit delayed. And we also have an extended conversation about how we define contenders and everything else, and it, it was fun, a really clarifying conversation about kind of rationales and all that type of stuff. I thought it was really good on a lot of different teams and how we feel about them, and of course, because I'm asking everyone this about the Thunder and how they proceed from here. The conversation runs a little bit over an hour, lots of great stuff here. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Glad we could finally find a time that works for both of us. Yeah, it has uh, apparently late Pacific time is, is is what can work. And this is an unusual kind of point in the league year where we're not that far past the trade deadline, but also the All-Star break is coming. Like the changeover that happened, I'm super thankful for from a professional and personal position because now the All-Star break is really a break. But it does mean that you're kind of like, we still haven't really gotten to see the new faces in the new places quite yet, other than like the Siakam and Ananobi ones, because they happened so much earlier. So I think the place I want to start is, what were your major takeaways, if you had any, from the deadline? Just in the days leading up to the deadline, I don't think there was anything major enough to shake up the league landscape as we know it. Um if there's something bold for any team, I think it's the Mavericks. I didn't really like what they did either. Uh, I didn't think they got enough for trading a, a valuable pick swap and a, a future first rounder that far out. Uh, but the potential's there for them to be somewhat better, and uh, the potential's there for this to go really poorly. So I, I think they were probably the most daring. Um, you know, I I think the Knicks got better. I, th- I think they did well. Uh, I think the Lakers getting Spencer Dinwiddie is, as far as buyouts go, which everybody overrates. I think that was pretty reasonably important. Um, uh, yeah, but I I maybe I'm missing a team. I'm not really sure that there were. You know, there's some surprises here and there. Some teams I thought did pretty well. I'll, I'll add the Hornets too. I think the Hornets positioned themselves well for their next era, finally making that choice to sell. Uh, but I, I don't think there were a lot of teams that really changed my conception of them significantly. I think that one of the takeaways for me from this is that we're starting, and you're, of course, extremely tuned in on this, probably better than me, of the, we're starting to see the real impacts of the second apron. And I mean, I, I wrote at The Athletic and talked about on Dunked On about the the way that this year has led to those second apron teams being proactive and how the Lillard and Beal and Harden trades in particular all could not have happened under the rules that will kick in for next year. But 
since those big moves had already happened, it did feel to me like, you know, you think about, I mean, yeah, and yes, both the Clippers and the Warriors made like moves on the margins. And so did the Boston Celtics with Tillman, who was less on the margins than like the Kamagate trade and the Warriors buying a late second round pick. But the idea that both in terms of buyouts and in terms of trading, those teams kind of have to do their business in a different chronology, in part because it's so much of a lift now to do moves. And because, you know, those are good teams. They want to be, you know, they want to have their Hardens and their Lillards for the whole season, not half. Yeah. One of my big curiosities from the second apron, and I think we're seeing some different approaches. And the Warriors, I guess, are the real team where I, I don't know, is are teams going to be afraid of the spending? Because that was how it was intended, right? They wanted to make it punitive enough that they can't say it's a hard cap because the players wouldn't go for that. But I think for a lot of teams, like this is closer to a hard cap than I ever expected the players to accept. And the players got a lot of things in exchange. So I'm not bashing uh, the players union on, on doing that. Uh, but I think we're seeing teams of the Clippers and the Kamigate trade is such a good example. Uh, I think we're seeing teams who are big spending teams saying, let's get our salaries up because I, I think it's going to be hard to add salary when you're already expensive, but it'll be much easier to maintain salary uh, once all these new rules come in. So go ahead, get your salary up. Now, this Kamigate trade, the Clippers are like, yeah, we have extra cash. Let's just use it instead of saying, oh, my goodness, this is punitive with the luxury tax and we should save where we can. It's like, no, this money's burning a hole in our pocket. Let's spend that, too, and position ourselves marginally better. And uh, I'm curious where the Warriors are going to go. Maybe you have a, a read on this. Obviously, Chris Paul's contract could be a, a swing piece. They could also look to trade Wiggins in the summer, the different ways they could trim salary. But I do think if they make that choice, they're not going to be able to build it back up easily. But on the other hand, if you choose to keep it up, it's not fun to pay that luxury tax when you're a 500-ish team. We are going to get a lot more information about what Joe Lacob, like how Joe Lacob sees this team. And, and there's the additional input of they own their arena. And so they have a different investment in terms of what like the Warriors being better has a larger delta for them than it does mm -hmm. for other teams. And that that could affect the thought process, but it also it could should. be it, it should. But it also could be the residual I'm not going to say pain. This team, I, I'm from what I from the from what I know, and I don't know that much. They're they're not exactly in financial pain right now, even though there are some bookkeeping things with the expensive chase that they can do. But they like I've I've posited this idea in a couple of spaces, including on Dunked On, that I'm not saying it's definite, but I think there is a distinct chance that the Warriors are out of the tax entirely in the 24-25 season. And they, it would be a real sacrifice in team quality, as you as you mentioned, because that would require letting Chris Paul go, and that would also require playing a version of hardball with Clay Thompson. There would be other ways that they could do it, but it's not as extreme as like Minnesota or some of these other ones. But it's always an important element, and you do a good job of this in Daily Dunks and other places of the choices that the Warriors have to make this this offseason because they they basically kicked that can down the road Mike Dunleavy did by not doing anything the deadline not that I'm criticizing it's just that's that was the choice he made status quo was a choice but the warriors being less expensive as a roster 
will have real consequences for their quality as a team and in some ways more specifically rather than their like best case scenarios because it would have effect there it's more the lack of mitigation of downside risk and like we've seen that with the Warriors they've won a few games recently but like there was this stretch when Chris Paul went down with his hand issue where they just like couldn't do anything on the second unit and they don't really have enough creators and everything else and so if they shed 30 40 million in salary and avoid the lecture tax or pay a much lower tax bill that will make the team worse and that can be an acceptable sacrifice but it should always be framed as a sacrifice like as the team getting worse to get cheaper i think that's all exactly right i want to expand on two parts um it's not that long ago maybe i maybe i'm just old i'd like to believe i'm not that old like now we talk about Golden State like it's a big market. It's only because the team has been so good. It wasn't that long ago uh, when people made jokes about the worst markets in the NBA. It might be Cleveland, might be Milwaukee, it could be Golden State. Like they were in the rotation of like, uh, who wants to you know watch a Golden State game on a Tuesday or something like those kinds of comments because they had been bad for so long. This is very much a swing market, and I think I don't know enough about every detail of their finances. But it strikes me that there is a lot of just financially money in continuing to be good. And if you – they're not going to be good forever, but when it happens that that they have a downturn – uh, you know, I, I just I think they're going to really feel it financially. And uh, even if their payroll is lower, that might not be worth it. Um, I think you're focused on at least what you were saying was, hey, they spend less. The team's going to be worse. And that's c- correct, of course. Uh, what I also think the other consequence is if you want to get back to a super high level of spending, this can be hard. Very just hard. The, 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 I mean, this was true in the previous CBA, but even more so in the, the new CBA. It's just hard to add salary. Uh, I I look back at the, the, the moment where I really realized, like, wow, the Warriors are on a different level, is the Kevin Durant sign-and-trade. I think there would have been most teams in the league at that point of time would have said, hey, Kevin Durant's leaving, but on the bright spot, like, we don't have to have this crazy luxury tax bill anymore. We don't have to pay this other superstar max salary. And instead, the Warriors said, like, let's get another salary on the books. Let's get D'Angelo Russell on the books. Do we believe in D'Angelo Russell? I don't think they ever believed in D'Angelo Russell, but they wanted his salary slot and were willing to pay him and the resulting luxury tax. And I think we're seeing more teams operate that way a little bit. Uh, but they were they were ahead, and that's opened up some things, you know, getting well, into I mean, Wiggins. Yeah. You could make an argument, and I would absolutely make this argument, that the Warriors do not win the 22 championship if they do not structure the Kevin Durant departure as a sign-and-trade. Agreed 100%. And, and I, I remember, I, I might be off on the details, I think there was something uh, Brian Windhorst said, maybe it might not have been him, but but something about how, like, oh, you know, they this the, they paid for this title, like, they, they bought part of it. You know, not that, obviously, Steph Curry's homegrown talent, Draymond Green is homegrown talent, Clay Thompson was homegrown talent. There's a lot of talk about that, but they bought the slot that turned into Andrew Wiggins, and that made the difference. Like, yeah, they would have been a really good team without Andrew Wiggins, but I, I think he put them over the top. Boston was good, too. And they did have some good fortune in the West that year. Many teams that advanced to the finals mm-hmm. do. But you're still going to, over the course of the season, over the course of the postseason, you're going to need that depth. And Wiggins played an integral role in many series of that playoffs. And and the other Warriors thread that is so fascinating, and it's harder as analysts because it's less analysis, is 
how the interpersonal dynamics are going to change. My theory is this is part of the reason why Bob Myers didn't want the job anymore, is that there are some tough negotiations. And largely, from the negotiation standpoint, it seems like things went pretty well with Draymond Green. He got uh, he got a, a stronger contract than I actually expected, more in terms of years than in terms of dollars. The annual value is about the same. And I th- my th- expectation is that the negotiations with Clay Thompson will be much tougher, in part because Clay Thompson, as of right now, is a materially worse player than he has been, whereas Draymond Green was like maybe like a slightly inferior version of the player that he was over the last couple of years. And Draymond's had a nice year when he hasn't been suspended. But Clay, not only the the offensive downturn that we've seen from him, and he's become a little bit more inconsistent, and his two-point shooting, in part because of his shot selection, has been worse, but it's the way that his athletic decline, injuries and non-injuries, aging, has changed the way the Warriors have to defend. Because one of the luxuries they had in prior years was that they were able to defend point of attack with taller players. And Steph Curry didn't have to take those assignments. He's honestly not great at it. And when Klay Thompson became a defensive wing rather than a defensive small, it became Andrew Wiggins, or they've tried Kaminga in that capacity now, or Gary Payton II, who's been hurt so much of this stretch of the year. And so I hadn't thought about defensively because you fixate on Draymond and, you know, Iguodala and all these other things and how nobody was bad, but there are certain niches that you have to fill. And so, for example, with the Warriors now, like they face tougher decisions, especially because Andrew Wiggins hasn't been Andrew Wiggins. Exactly. If Wiggins were having a good year, Clay's decline would be less noticeable, still pretty noticeable. Uh, I am also curious about Clay's negotiations this summer. They're going to be tougher. They're also just going to be less consequential. Like Clay is helping this team, I guess, but he's just not that important of a piece in his age. I'm not counting on him getting back. Now, that's just, of course, on the court in the locker room. Emotionally, his connection to Steph, his history there, uh, you know, he means a lot to that franchise. I, I think uh, the team's veterans, Steph and, and Draymond, of course, will want him back. And so the Warriors are going to have to think about those things. But let's just say there, there's another team that gives Clay an offer and he leaves. I just don't think that's going to be that consequential to the Warriors' on-court performance. I mean, one of the most wild things when you think about it is that, and we got asked, some somebody asked about this about like in, in a mailbag is like, is Dante Givincenzo a poor man's Clay? And the way that the dynamic, the levels of those two players have shifted over the last couple of years, and of course, Steven Chenzo was on the Warriors last year, and you can't get him with the non-taxpayer mid-level if that would be available. I, I actually haven't run the math. I believe those salaries have risen faster than the exception because as you and I are inevitably going to be obsessed with, you'll be able to trade for a player if their contract fits within the MLE next year, which you haven't been able to do before. But it is wild how that kind of shift happened. Now, that's an interesting question. I mean, it'll depend on how the salary cap rises, but that's kind of an interesting benchmark of, okay, somebody signs for the middle-level exception one year, the full amount, and gets the 5% typical raises. Well, does the salary cap rise above or below 5%? Because it's the projections have kind of hovered around there. They've been mostly a little lower than that, uh, but they very, they often rise the projections often rise later in the year. So that, yeah, that's an, I haven't thought about that. That's an interesting benchmark. Will the salary cap rise at least 5%? And will that allow players who sign for the full MLE with another team to get, uh, to be, to be tradable into an MLE? 
Another takeaway for me from the deadline, and, and it was in stark contrast to the mock deadline that you and I were both a part of, is the big the big remaining names after the moves that had already happened, like Harden and Siakam and OG Ananobi, that didn't move. And the calculus that seems to be involved, that is in part the weakness of some of the offers and teams like the Lakers, like the Mavericks, so the Mavericks move some of the resources, that can offer something stronger in in July or in June than they can right now because of the Stepien rule and a few other elements. And normally the ebb of that is that the the offers are stronger earlier in a player's contract because you get them for longer and everything else like that. But because of some of those nuances and then some teams being more complicated because of the second apron or just where they were, it is, for example, completely reasonable. We don't know exactly what the offer was for the Hawks to believe that the Lakers will still be interested in DeJounte Murray. And will actually be able to make a will make a stronger offer. Not will will be able to. We know that's true. But will actually make a stronger offer in June, July than they did the the deadline. That might have fit into the Hawks' calculus. I'm going to make a prediction. The Lakers are not going to make a stronger offer for Dejounte Murray unless they feel sufficiently pressed by LeBron. And I don't know why they would after not feeling pressed by him this deadline when he was doing all of his you know, usual passive aggressive stuff. I think the Lakers are making a big mistake in their strategy. And I've, I've said this for the last couple of years and LeBron remains great uh, against the odds in a lot of ways as you know, he's just exceptional and you just can't count on him continuing to be this exceptional at this age. I'm trying to go in right now. I feel like the Lakers have more of a priority on, well, we got to be balanced long-term. We don't want to be too stuck in, you know, 2029 without any, you know, without our pick, you know, that might make it harder for us in 2029. I think right now, if they had been more aggressive in using their picks, maybe that's for Kyrie Irving uh, a year ago. Maybe that's for DeJounte Murray now. Like, I'm not pinning it on exactly what player, but I I think using the pick now is far more likely to swing the most important thing. Did you win a championship or not? Then that having that pick or not in 2029 is going to swing it. Like, what are the odds that, that the marginal difference is a championship in 2029, which is so far out? Uh, who knows where they'll be right now? I know they have LeBron James. I know they have Anthony Davis, and I know those guys are stars right now. This is when I want to go in, and I just I don't think that's their mindset, and I don't expect that to change this summer, even though they'll have more available. That's a really fascinating framing of it, and and it also you can tie it in with, and I'm saying this with a little bit of an eye roll, but I mostly mean it of Lakers exceptionalism. And so what I mean by yep. that is I so I did the, I did a little riff on this in a fifteen sixty recently in a normal circumstance. I would think that the Lakers are pretty well suited for a teardown around like to, to be significantly worse in let's say 28 then and they own their own pick that year then they then they are like I mean right now obviously because they the Lakers don't have a ton of young talent that really moves the needle for me I mean they have guys that could step up but they don't have like the the budding young star that they're gonna have but because the Lakers have such a history of having players be interested and they just got a very talented buyout guy in Dinwiddie well I was stunned that he was on the market and 
they also, you know, in terms of high level free agents and everything else, and I will be interested in how the brand shifts with the Clippers going to a new arena and everything else. But as somebody who lives in LA, who constantly thought about what it would take for the Clippers to surpass the Lakers, and basically every piece of data since then has been they won't. Like, even if the Clippers <laughs> win two championships, the Lakers are still the Lakers and the Clippers will be better, but still won't be. Like, that's the difference between you brought up the Warriors change in stature is that. If there was another team in the Bay Area that was the Lakers, then it would be a very different story. And so what I think about with the Lakers is is like it, it's a complicated thing. And it's funny, you and I partially disagree on this, but we partially agree. And the idea that the the present the present is worth prioritizing. Like I think that is a completely reasonable evaluation of the Lakers. And the thing that I've been wondering about. So my one of my kind of like pet theories, and I do not believe because of how they are run that the Lakers will do this, has been keeping the powder dry the way that they have and not going as aggressively. Like one, it might be an evaluation of just how they are as a team. Like I personally don't think that the Lakers are good enough that getting DeJounte Murray puts them in. Now, if they got Kyrie and it had worked out in a prior year, maybe we're having a different conversation. But The idea that I haven't really talked about publicly yet, but I will do right now, is that if there are scenarios where this offseason goes in a way where this might actually, where June, July might actually be the right time to trade Anthony Davis and just set it up yourselves. Uh, Make the case, and here's what you got to overcome. I think the Lakers brand benefits tremendously from being a place that caters to stars, and that means you don't trade a star when he wants to be there. So you got to overcome that. You got to make it so much worth it that you're you're changing your identity. So what what's the case for for well, doing it on your own terms then? Part part of it would be you kind of faci- you facilitate and clutch makes this significantly more complicated for the Lakers. You try to make it so that Anthony Davis kind of you know the the old like inception idea of like you try to make it seem like it's their idea and that the okay. Lakers part of it is that. But part of it is I, as much as I love Anthony Davis, and he is a wonderful player, we've seen, uh, as LeBron is better at age 39 than I anticipated, but he's still, I I don't think he's the best player in a championship team. Maybe he can put it together. Like, it's easier to do for the in-season tournament than it is for the postseason. And this is an incredibly top-heavy team. And for me, the bigger concern, and you, I get, I'm not saying this is a definitive thing or anything like that. I'm worried about how first of all how their two stars are going to age but more specifically that you could reach a point with davis who remember signed a lucrative extension in the offseason so basically he is signed right now we don't know the exact terms for the later years but he is signed through 27 28 where you know that he's going into his age 31 season next year where it's going to be you know massive outlay like we don't know the exact numbers but let's say it's something like my estimate right now is it's going to be something like $54 million a year for the next four years. Big, big outstanding obligation. One of the things we know about the league, and incidentally, the Lakers are good with this because of the trades that they did involving Russell Westbrook, especially the one that they did inquiring in, which was a gigantic mistake, is there is a Rubicon where a player on a big number is palatable and then unpalatable. And my concern is that if LeBron takes a step back or is not on the team anymore— and and or Davis takes a step back that he could potentially cross that Rubicon. And I think you could get a ton for AD right now. I think that teams would be interested. He's still in the like still a very talented defender, highly regarded player. And so 
I worry, even with the idea of Lakers exceptionalism, that there will be that you will reach a point where in like 25 or in 26 where you're not flexible enough because of all the all the commitments they made with you know Hachimura and Vincent and Reeves and Vando to really pivot without something there and that at that point if Davis has changed you know his it's and it's not even as much his level as a player it's more the perception of his level as a player has changed enough where all of a sudden those avenues aren't there anymore. I think he has such a high standing in the league. I think he would decline as a player before his perception changes. So so the like the jump shot respect argument that basically like even if incidentally, of course Russell Westbrook a great example of this <laughs> right. where where it's like maybe like you and I are talking about how OAD oh, is not the same guy, but that you could still basically as long as you're ahead of the you just need to be the second fast, second slowest person. You don't have to be the slowest <laughs> person to it. That's right. a fair argument. That's persuasive. And I, I would also just it's, I mean, of, of course, it depends what's out there. Right. But just what I could imagine being out there and I think it'd be really good offers, too. I'd be hard-pressed to find a trade that would make the Lakers more likely to win a championship as long as LeBron is still there. So I think I, I'm just keep – I mean, I'm listening, right? I, I'm willing to listen and hear it out if there's something. But I think generally my strategy is I'm keeping Anthony Davis as long as LeBron is still playing at a star level. And I'm trying to go a little more all in than the Lakers seem to be doing. But regardless of that, after LeBron is done, when he finally retires, then I'll evaluate where we are with Anthony Davis. And you know what? If it turns into he was a bad contract, I'm just going to say I'm willing to make that trade off to have some of these years. Look, the Lakers, I thought, given their playoff run, I I thought they had a a satisfying season last year. Absolutely. I I, I don't think it's only the championship team can walk away from the season feeling good. Wholeheartedly agree. The Lakers are one of the teams that should walk away feeling good. And if I've got LeBron playing at a star level, uh, I want Anthony Davis on the team too, and we're going to try and have as much success as we can. Totally fair. Let's go from one hot button issue, that being the Lakers and and their future, to another. You can define this term however you want because it's extremely loaded. What teams, what is the list of teams that now that the deadline is over that you consider at reasonably healthy, reasonable full strength to be a viable championship team this year? Well, so my list is always longer than everybody else's. Uh, so I, I will never be caught off guard with a championship team. Uh, and this year, it's it's fairly open. I do think the Celtics and the Nuggets are in a class to themselves. Agreed. But I also think uh, the Clippers, you know, to how you worded the question, I think the Clippers are there. I think the Bucks are there. I think the 76ers are there. I think the Thunder are there. I think the Knicks are there. The Cavs. Timberwolves, uh, Suns should be high, right? You know, I I uh, was just kind of browsing the standings, sure, um, and so they they can be in a slightly higher tier. Um, I think the Mavericks with all the right breaks. Uh, I'll even say the Lakers. That's probably about where I'd end it. And I know your list is going to be way shorter. <laughs> it is. And part of, of course, part of this, and Seth Partner and I talked about this a lot on the last Real Jam Radio, and part of why I think that the the top teams are the biggest winners at the deadline is just that no one really jumped into that conversation, is I'm I'm the opposite. I'm I'm much more aggressive in the idea of, first of all, I'm, I'm okay with being surprised. It's pretty fun. But <laughs> the other part of it is, 
what the overwhelming dynamic for me in the way that the league is structured right now is this I brought this up with the Clippers last year, and the Clippers are better this year, so I'm not sure that they even fit this description, but it was what inspired it, of the can-beat-anyone, won't-beat-everyone. And so what I mean by that is a team that is has enough talent to win a, a given series— and like, so last year's Clippers were kind of like that for me. Like I could see them upsetting pretty much anybody. But the challenge of the NBA playoffs and part of why I love it so much is that you have to beat, I usually use the rubric of three high level teams that have different strengths, different weaknesses, and can have at least a a, a, a solid level of coaching. You know, there, there are some that are good, some that are bad, so be it. And there are a lot of teams this year, like, I mean, people have asked me about the Knicks, like, are, are the Knicks a viable championship team? And I'm like, first of all, they have more, because, especially because they made a roster change that we're not fully getting to see because of not only Ananobi's injury, but Julius Randle's. My general threshold is you need to be elite on one end of the four, and you need to be at least very good on the other. Because the idea is that if you're elite on one end, even a very good team counter countering that can have some trouble. This was the idea behind the Nuggets metronome. And if you're at least very good on the other end, then, you know, teams can slow you down. They can, whether it's a good, whether it's a very good offense or a very good defense, like you'll have some troubles, but you can generally make it out enough to make the finals to do something. And what strikes me is like the Knicks and the Cavs and the Wolves. I, I think the big thing for me is that my instinct is they're not good enough at their strength side. That's the problem for me. Like Minnesota's wonderful defensive group, but I don't think that what they do well is going to work against everybody. Same general story with the Knicks. Like I think of them as better regular season defenses. It's not so much about their weaknesses, though I do. I am concerned about that, especially for the Cavs offense and the, of, of any of them specifically. But that's my kind of concern. It's not so, it is that, those teams, and then there are a couple where it's the weakness. Like, I don't think Phoenix can defend. I, I, I saw them play against the Warriors a couple nights ago. Like, I just don't think they have the players to defend at a high enough level to win four series against different kinds of teams. I definitely agree with those assessments on the Knicks and Timberwolves, but I also think, for me, it's like, well, could you see them making the conference finals? Well, yeah. Well, if they make the conference finals, couldn't they win <laughs> the conference finals? Well, sure, okay. Well, so they can make the finals. Well, if they can make the finals, could they win it? Well, okay. So here's what I'm going to give you. Last year, the Nuggets had a historically easy road to a championship in the playoffs. No, I'm not saying easy. I'm not saying easy. But as easy as it gets to win a title based on opponent quality. I think there are a lot of teams uh, who I just named, and I think teams you would include, who could have won all of those series. Who who would have, you know, would they have been able to beat everybody? You know, uh, what what was the exact phrase you said? Can beat anybody, but not everybody? But can beat anyone, but won't beat everyone. Right. Uh, I think that's true in an average path, but if you happen to get the Nuggets path of last year, maybe they do beat everyone. Now, there's some caveats here. And I I also, before anybody in Denver gets upset, uh, part of what happened last year was the Nuggets were the best team and had the easiest path. That's part of the reason they crushed everybody in the playoffs. I mean, right? They, they I, only I, lost four games. Like yeah, you, I, you, you can you can take an easy path and still demolish the world. Right. I, I think they would have been the most likely champion with a harder path too. But they happened to have an easy path, and they they took care of business. And part of the reason they had an easy path is because some of the quote unquote better teams didn't take care of business. Also, uh, to undercut my own argument, uh, it's much easier for the best team to have an easy path because they never have to play the best team for the. 
Yeah, that's the old, the old like, why the bad teams always have such tough opponent right. strength of schedule at the end of the year is because they don't get to play themselves. Right. If the if the Knicks are third or fourth in the East, I mean, they could finish higher. But wherever, you know, a team that I'm picking, or the Suns, right? The Suns probably aren't going to finish a- as high. It's going to be harder for them to avoid all the very best teams, where the Nuggets, as the best team themselves, uh, had an easier time. But I do think, you know... I, I when we're talking about teams that could plausibly win a championship, I look at you know, hey, I've seen a team get get all, this massive break with its postseason schedule like the Nuggets got. What if it's a lesser team getting that break? I do think they could win. It's fair. And the other weird element for this year, which makes me less confident in my kind of aggression, is that – First of all, I'm a little less confident in some of the top teams. Like Denver's still really, really good, but I, th- I, I don't know that they're better than last year. Just from an overall, like their their talent level is a little bit weaker. You know, they don't have Bruce Brown this year, and they're I don't I mean some of their young guys are better than they were, but I don't think they've made up for that gap, and they don't have a lot of age related progression that is going on there. And Boston is definitely I think they're better from a talent perspective, but they're also a little more a little more brutal with injuries and we still haven't seen it in the playoffs. And so the idea that you brought up the Nuggets path that the top is not as daunting as it was before mm. is a really interesting idea. And and the way that came up, Nate and I were doing a mailbag, I think that was a day ago for um for Dunkton. And somebody brought up like, oh, the Heat can't make the Eastern Conference Finals. And he and I both immediately said, oh, yes, they can. Like <laughs> the the idea that especially, I mean, one of the great tricks with this is if you have a player who is a viable best player in the series against almost anybody, then the calculus on this kind of shifts on its head. And not only because Miami has this precedent, but because Jimmy Butler, we know can take the regular season a little bit easier, but we know his level as a playoff player. And I have zero reason to believe that he will be significantly worse if healthy than he was last year. And well, so, I'll give you one reason. He's a year older. I mean, he's in sure. his mid-30s. Like, at, at some point, he's not going to be able to do in the playoffs what he does every sure. year. And, and we might not realize it in the regular season, but in the playoffs, we might go, and maybe in hindsight, we'll go, oh, you know mm-hmm. what? He was be- he was he was doing the things in the regular season that were even lower than his typical regular season, which is also still pretty darn good. Like sure for some for something we always talk about coasting in the regular season, he's still pretty darn good in the regular season. Yeah. Should have made the All Star team, but I'm not going to get into that. But Agreed. the so maybe the like you talked about poking holes in your own argument. I'm going to poke holes in mine. One of the things that I could be getting wrong here, and I I will admit, I, you know, one of the I got Denver's defense wrong last year, and they were a lot better there, and that allowed the offensive consistency to rule the day is maybe I'm because I use a more conceptual bar for a champion like I have this idea of you know and, and I of course had to modify that in certain years where like the the best of the Warriors teams or everything else but generally speaking the way that I operate is I have this idea of a conceptual champion. And it's like the things that they do well, the things they do poorly. And I hold teams to that standard. That is the way that I generally evaluate it. And it works out well sometimes. It doesn't work out well some other times. But the arg- one of the interesting arguments against the way that I see it is that it allows for less variance in team quality for a given season. And part of the reason that's really compelling this year is that while there are some teams that are very good, like I think that the the Nuggets and the Celtics are both wonderful teams, is that when we talk about top-heavy teams all the time, but when it's a little bit of a top-heavy league, it doesn't take that much for the bar to get a lot lower. 
And so if, you know, I, I don't want anybody to get hurt, but if either of those teams suffers an injury for a top four player, they get significantly more beatable, not only in the conference finals or the NBA finals, but in, honestly, in the second round, depending on how everything goes. And so at that point, and then that gets into an idea that I honed with when the Suns made the finals in twenty in 21, is the healthiest team in the mix. And you can make an argument. So I'm kind of elevating the mix. I'm saying that the mix is like a, a, a smaller group. But if your theory of the case is closer to right, then healthiest team in the mix could be one of like 10 teams. Well, I think that's about how many I had. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like you might be, you might be right there because then if... If let's say it's instead of it being and I'm just throwing abstracts out there instead of it being you need to reach the threshold in your play, not necessarily in terms of anything else of a 64 win team to win the championship. If if it instead that ends up being a 58 win team or a 55 win team, then it's it's all bets are off. I like how you how you worded that. You know, maybe the question is, hey, a typical champion, we're going to say needs to play like. And obviously, we're doing something a little weird with like regular season record versus playoff team. But if we're just trying to say, look, we're, we're not we're not calling these teams so different. And you know, obviously, some teams can elevate their play in the playoffs. But just historically, when you think of a 64 win team, who's capable? Do you think in the playoffs of getting to the level of a typical 64 win team? My list would have been a lot shorter. Uh, but c- can we go back to your original question? I don't know if I got a, a pin down answer from you of who are the championship contenders. Uh, so- How many would you say? Inner Circle, Boston, and Denver, because I think Boston's the most talented team in the league. Denver has already proven it with largely the same roster. Then Outer Circle, the Clippers are definitely in there. And then here's the wild thing. If I were to say the next team that I have the most confidence could win a championship this year, it's the Thunder. Mm. I think I, I would have more confidence in the Thunder winning a title this year than Minnesota, than Cleveland, than New York. Philly's a complicated case because we have so many questions about their health. I mean, they have Joel is currently injured. And, oh, I guess so then, but the team actually, and then the other team that would be, so I guess above OKC and then around the Clippers would be Milwaukee because they have Giannis who could be the best player in the series, you know, mm-hmm. even though I have plenty of misgivings with the Bucks And p- predicting, like, I'm, I, I'm probably going to pick against Doc Rivers at least at least once, maybe twice in the playoffs, depending on how long the Bucks survive. <laughs> but they still have a lot of talent, and they like the 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 Bucks have one of the larger margins between their ceiling and their expected value and their four. And yeah. so those sorts of teams are always going to actually be higher in this conversation because like. The Bucks' best is better to me than like the Mavericks' bests or the Knicks' yep. bests. So you give them a little bit of deference, and it's very possible that they get knocked out earlier. We just have to see. Yeah, I mean that's why like if you expand it to how I'm defining it, that's why the Mavericks are in the conversation. I think sure. they're they're kind of like the Bucks of a far lower rung down. Uh, the Thunder here is why. I mean they're really good. I enjoy watching them. They're well coached. They've got good depth. They've got good. Young players they at this point i'd say have the likely mvp so you could say he's going to be the best player in a lot of series here is why i doubt it i really feel like and i i think you need to have some more playoff experience and i think it has to you know i mean they haven't even uh been making the playoffs with this group but i think you need to get to the second beyond second round and beyond to really feel the intensity of the playoffs the attention uh the strategy of playing the same team game to game just the lights the pressure all 
all of it. I just think it's too difficult to come without that second round and beyond experience and all of a sudden be good enough to win a championship without a ton of breaks. Uh, I mean, I did include the Thunder in my list of I mean, teams that could potentially win it, but I, I wouldn't have them as high as you do. Historically, you're correct. You are 100% correct. Seth and I talked about this a little bit, and he was saying that the Thunder have basically only two teams are even close to having as little playoff experience as they have and even made the NBA Finals. And the, in modern vintage, those are the first Warriors champion, 14-15, and the 2022 Suns. And one of the big differences between the Thunder and those teams is that the Thunder, like, they're, it's not even like these players have, like, reps in a different circumstance or something else, you know, like, like the, they're basically all just playoff noobs. And that's, you know, like, I mean, Shea Gilgis Alexander has played in the playoffs before, but it hasn't been since 2020. And of course, he's a completely different player. And a part of what concerns me about being high on the Thunder is that the other historical element is that generally, though not exclusively, team unconventional teams are even harder to do it all their first time because the track record is generally that something something's there something something isn't some you know there's there's a little bit of a ghost in the machine or something else one thing that gives me confidence in the thunder and there's a lot of context here that I don't I don't have which may or may not help them I don't know OKC has been the second best team in terms of both record and net rating against the 10 best teams in the league. And this is for cleaning the glass, but you could look at other things and it's basically the same. And the only team that's been better than them is Boston. And I'm not super confident that Shea Gildas Alexander is going to be the best player in a playoff series, but I do believe that the spacing and the coaching and their functional depth, though not star depth, will serve them extremely well in the playoffs. So what I will say right now, and this in, in this way I'm similar to, to you, is I think that the Thunder will be will perform, or at least have the capability, to perform significantly better than their predecessors in terms of playoff experience and everything else. The question, sorry, sorry. The question is, is that enough? And I genuinely don't know the answer. Obviously, this overlaps with a lot of the things you just said. I think the best thing the Thunder have going in their favor. I mean, look at obviously the best thing they have going in their favor. We a lot of people tend to overthink these things. The best thing about them is they're just a really good team. Yes, Uh, with with a legit MVP candidate. Yeah, I mean, even if they didn't have, however, they got there. Just like if you're talking about championship contenders, just start with the teams that are really, really good, and the Thunder are one of them. But the more specific thing, they're really versatile, and I think there's a big reason they have such a good record uh, against the league's top teams. They can play different styles. They can uh, shift, and some of that's personnel. Some of that is uh, leaving the same personnel out there, but gearing it in different ways. And and so that's what you need to go through a playoff run. Now, are they battle-tested enough to implement that? I don't think so. But for a regular season team, they're really versatile. I also wonder, the Thunder are a very different team to officiate, and I don't necessarily think that will work entirely against them because they're a very drive-heavy team, and so generally drive-heavy teams can have trouble if the teams are, if refs are swallowing their whistle more. The Thunder aren't necessarily driving to score that bucket, so it could be a little bit of a different calculus for them. But we also haven't seen how Shea Gilders-Alexander, how Lou Dort, how Jalen Williams and Chet are going to respond to not only the shift in officiating, but the shift in coaching. And I think that players who can shoot, generally, that works better for them just because you can't tack, you can't have tactic them in the same way. It's part mm-hmm. of the reason I've been a big believer on it over the last decade with the Warriors and everything else. But they're playing a different style of center 
for mostly all 48 minutes that they did sign Bismack Biombo, so we'll see how much he factors in. I'm guessing it will be small, but present. And if that ends up boating poorly for them, if the drive game doesn't yield the same fruit, or if like some of this incredible overall three-point shooting that they have is a little bit over their skis, which I think it is, then then their offensive theory gets a little bit more challenging as well. Right. I think they're, this is where they lack some versatility, uh, even though I just described the versatile overall and believe that. Uh when you need a bigger center, more of a traditional center, it's obviously a pretty big talent downgrade when you're bringing Bismack Biombo if you onto the court. If that's what you're doing, maybe you've already lost. So I'm going to ask you the question that I asked Seth, and he, he gave a really interesting answer on this, is I'm not going to have you name specific players, and I'm only going to ask one question, no follow-ups on this. Generally speaking, as Sam Presti, not knowing how the postseason is going to go and the trade mm-hmm. deadline's over, you can't make a move right now. What would your philosophy be trying to move the Thunder forward? Would it be trust, see how these guys go, see how things go this year? Is it fill niches? So, like, maybe you identify point of attack defender or wing defender or something else, you know, like on ball creator, whatever it's going to be. Or is it just, hey, we have more resources than almost anybody. Let's just, let's talent our way out of it, whatever the problem is. And we can just, we can add, maybe you're not going to add a top 15 player in the league, but you can add a top 30 and they can fill a different role and you just see where things go. And of course, I'd love to add a really high level, star level player sooner than later, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do that at a reasonable price. So assuming I cannot, assuming that's but what, correct. What if, what if you were well, willing to pay an unreasonable price? Well, I'm not. I have a player in mind. Well, maybe for the right player, but here's, here's where I'm, I don't know exactly what the optimal player style looks like for who I want to add. This team is still so new in, in how it's coming together. These players themselves are still developing. They're not a finished product. Uh, so I think my general philosophy would be I have all these assets. I am going – I want to hold them. I want to wait. And a lot of them are long-term assets. I want to be an even better team than they are now. Uh, the the type of regular season team they are now plus playoff experience, you know, as these players develop, I, I want to be closer to my peak and then try and trade for the player. And also, I think uh, being an even better team, I'll have more players interested in us. Of course, somebody's under contract. Uh, it's still very possible uh, for them to influence where they end up. We ha- we'll have cap room this summer and we, we can uh, try and add, you know, we're not going to get the top 30 player you talked about in free agency but we can get somebody pretty good to fill holes we have and we identify after the playoff run Uh, but to get that real star that real difference maker i'm willing to wait because we'll still have those picks so here's the player that i was thinking about it would be a surreal negotiation considering the resources that each of these teams have which makes it almost unprecedented Sam Presti could put together an offer that Danny Ainge would be a fool to refuse for Larry Markkinen. And I I asked you a question on, on Gchat a few days ago with this specific thing in mind. I have not talked about it publicly. Of now that OKC has cap space, they have the capacity to renegotiate 
Lowry Markin. Now, they cannot renegotiate and extend him. They would have to renegotiate, then extend him. That is the nuance of OKC's circumstance as I read the CBA. I could be wrong. I need to spend a lot more time on it if I'm going to like write a piece on this. But the Thunder, basically, because what they what they don't need is a from is a defensive identity. But what they do need, if they're going to like get to this like wild ceiling, is another player that is that other teams have to scramble to guard. And that player has to be able to shoot, and that player has to be a capable defender. They don't have to be a star. They they they're handling that in other ways. And so Markinen, because the other thing that Markinen, why I'm I'm thinking about him in this, and I've, I periodically have positive guys like Zion and a few others, is that he's not a perfect player, but his deficiencies don't really matter for the Thunder. That's certainly an interesting name. If I'm the Thunder, I would love to get Lowry Markinen. How to? I I I am less convinced. Well, I don't know. Like, what players are you willing to put? Of course, they can make an offer that the the Jazz can't refuse. If you're putting in Shea Gilgis Alexander or Chet Holmgren, obviously you're not doing that. I, I know that's what you you mean, not including them. But just with draft picks, like. I, uh, teams don't have an easy time trading their franchise player just for picks. I, I think we, especially when your trade partner has almost as many picks as you do. Like the, right. they're they're the Thunder have already reached the point of diminishing marginal returns to the point that they've been actively kicking cans down the road for two years. And yeah. the Jazz, if they're not there now, they're going to be there soon. I mean, they did just acquire a first in the moves that they made at the deadline. So it would be a it would be a surreal, arguably unprecedented negotiation. Um, and the other way that it could you get your thumb on the scale is, of course, if you can get Larry Barkin to say that he would rather be in Oklahoma City than to be in Salt Lake City. And in that sort of a circumstance, then that could that could do it. I don't know if that's actually true, obviously, but it's that that's the type of swing. Like it, it's so funny that OKC they're so good and they're so young. And the, and the other thing with OKC is that they're broadly speaking, and some of these will change in time, they're actually not high-end asset heavy if they're not willing to trade their best young players. Because most of the picks they have, as we know it right now, probably aren't going to be great because they're either far enough out that we can't be sure, or they're from teams that are close up, but they're from teams that are at least pretty good. So I, I don't see a top five pick, either their own or in the picks that they're owed from anyone else. So, you know, it's not like the Celtics... Nets trade from those many years ago or anything like but, that. W- when that trade happened, nobody saw a top five pick. The, True. The, I, Actually, I that's think a fair the point. Idea, the idea is that within this volume, is it more likely than not that one of them becomes a top five pick, right? Any specific one? No. But between all of them, uh, is it maybe that's a lot for you and Nate? Like, yeah. So like, I, I mean, like, like I mean, one example you could use there is 2026. So OKC receives the two most favorable of their own pick. The Clippers pick and Houston's protected only one to four. Yeah, I don't feel good about any of those. You don't feel good, but is there a possibility that one of those teams at least misses the playoffs? Of course. Yeah. You know, that that Maverick swap looks pretty nice. Yeah, that's true. Um, But yeah, so it's just a fascinating situation. I don't want to really spend more time on it, but I've been... I love the extremes and like I've become... I've spent so much time in my brain figuring out how I would run the Spurs that I'm kind of bored of it now. And now I've moved on to <laughs> obsessing about what do you do with the Thunder because we've almost, it's so rare that we've seen a team be this good, this young. And so that it, 
it warps your perception of like what is what not only what is and isn't possible, but more what the path forward is because you can't really use the normal like you know like we you and I like we'll talk at length about like the teams that should be sellers and the team that should be buyers. And it's like. Well, I mean, they're good now. They're really good now. They could be better later. And I mean, with the Thunder, if you think about the normal age progression, I mean, Shea's a little bit older. He's This is age 25 season, but Jalen Williams, 22, Chet Holmgren, 21. That speaks to your idea of waiting a couple of years, seeing what you need, getting to see where what happens with some of these picks. And basically, and then the other thing that you get then is the team's going to be a lot more expensive by that point because you're getting closer to those guys getting new contracts. But... You could even, one of the pathways is just you keep those picks and that's how you kind of build up your depth and you can, maybe you can trade out of that depth either with the young guys that you've already drafted or everything else. Yeah, that's a great call too on, and if you have the picks, you have the optionality to use it for depth when you're expensive. You just, they're, they're in a great position for a team to be this good, this young, and with so many assets left. It's incredible. I haven't seen a team look this promising since the last time the Thunder were this promising. Hopefully, and there were a lot of things that went really well last time, but hopefully this one turns out better. They didn't win a championship, of course, even though there were a couple of good opportunities. I will go to my grave being completely convinced that the Thunder would have won in 2016 if they had beaten the Warriors. And um, Andre Guadalla said the same, but I I mean, I was there in OKC for those, those two games that they took. I think that was, was that one and two or was that three and four anyway i'm i'm old i've forgotten already but i think that was three and four the warriors won 73 games that year and did not drop off in the playoffs and i thought the thunder in those first four games just outplayed a 73 win team and then i thought the warriors raised their level beyond what even the thunder were doing uh and then the cow i don't know i mean the Cavs are at a super high level too i think all three of those teams historically are super underrated uh i i don't i think people maybe look at the Cavs a little fluky they were playing a, a such a high level by the end uh the warriors don't get the credit they deserve because they didn't win it and the thunder get even less but they were right there at, at in those conference finals just playing amazingly Last thread I want to ask you about, you know, we even if this was a less eventful deadline meeting specifically Thursday than than we expected, there are some new faces and new places. And there are also other things, of course, to focus on around the league. We are getting close to the All-Star break, but over the next few weeks, I usually use two weeks, but now with the All-Star break, it's a little bit different. What teams, what players, what situations are you going to be most interested in? P.J. Washington. I don't know if I'm going to get an answer in the next two weeks. I, I see the P.J. Washington debates happening right now of, hey, you know, he wasn't that good in Charlotte. He's just kind of a guy out there. He definitely wasn't driving winning, uh, doesn't have winning habits, doesn't have the focus and intensity that that he'll need to be on a really good team. And the other play pulls saying like hey he's a really talented player can do a lot of different things uh maybe not great at one thing but good at a lot of things uh can fit in a lot of different ways and getting him on a better structured team will do wonders for him and i think both cases are really compelling uh i have a lot of issues with what pj washington was as a player i think he was overrated for what he was doing in charlotte but that doesn't mean i don't see the potential for him to be really good for dallas and i i just don't know which way that's gonna go 
It's a great one. And I've been lower on PJ Washington than the general consensus for a long time. But part of the joy of seeing a player in a new situation is a chance to reevaluate that prior. And I am confident in my current evaluation. However, I am always open to new information. And I the part of the fun of this business is that putting a player in a new situation can unlock something, or maybe it doesn't. But you, you get into that. I'm going to point out a couple of different teams. One, the Pacers. First of all, they're the most fun team for my money to watch mm-hmm. in the entire league. I love Matt Moore's line about how the two best league pass teams are the Pacers and whoever's playing the Pacers. I, <laughs> I, whole, I wholeheartedly agree yeah. with that. So they're they're one in integrating Pascal Siakam, how Rick Carlisle is going to run this rotation now that they don't have Buddy Heald. And because the Eastern Conference is shaking out so differently with Joel Embiid's injury and everything else, like I'm, I'm going to be looking at the Pacers and the Cavs and the Knicks and all these teams with a more, you could say, a more critical eye because the, there is a greater opportunity now. I, I had previously thought that it was, even though the Sixers, I had plenty of misgivings with them, that it was like, you know, it's going to take a lot to beat the, the three best teams in the, in the East. And now I'm like, it's going to take a lot to beat the one best team in the East. And we'll see about everyone else. So so then that means, you know, I'm going to watch a lot more of the Pacers and the Knicks being like kind of in the threshold we were talking about before of like, is this a team that... Like that, I would favor in a series against some of these teams is a team that has some real advantages that I should be appreciating and everything else. So they're one. The other one, unfortunately, Dyson Daniels is going to be out for longer with the torn meniscus. I'm not going to be watching the Pelicans much before the break, but it's kind of looking to me as I read the injury reporting, and you you read this more closely even than I do. It kind of feels to me like they're ramping up to get everyone back after All-Star. And, I mean, they've had a successful season. The the, the Pelicans, it gets lost a little bit in the shuffle. As we're recording this, New Orleans is 10 games over 500. they They're basically a plus four net rating, which is ninth in the NBA. And they still haven't, like, really had had their best foot forward at too many points this year. And... We've brought up the like kind of the 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 best case scenarios for like the Mavericks and being all that compelling. And for for the Pelicans, I just need to figure out what in the world that is. It's not. Yeah. I, I just need to know like, okay, what is this team going to be? What are they going to look like? And I feel like there's going to be a window, and hopefully it's the whole rest of the season. But if we're speaking honestly, it's probably not going to be. So right after the deadline, they have a homestand where they play Houston, Miami, and Chicago, and then they play at New York and at Indiana. I wouldn't be. I would expect that I will probably watch at least three of those games in full. Yeah, they're uh, they're an interesting team. I I guess in that I they're good. I know that. Uh, what what is their? How can they unlock something better? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure either. But I want to find out. Yeah. And and they have they have high level talent. And then the other. I mean the Pelicans. For I mean, at least two years now, I've been talking about how like it doesn't seem like their their main their their what they consider their foundation like has congruity with each other, and yep. I want to see whether I still feel that way. And there are plenty of circumstances where that can change. But so interested in them, and then I'll throw another flyer out there. I let, in- let, let, let me just wrap some up on the Pelicans. Sure. I guess the way I see them, and maybe this is wrong, they their their talent is good enough where it doesn't fit great together to still for them to still be a really good team, but it's not like i don't know it took a while for Dwayne wade and lebron say with the heat to fit together but it didn't matter because they were so talented this team is nowhere near that and so i i just don't know how they overcome that that lack of fit the other kind of two teams i want to mention that are further down the list 
the Orlando Magic and the Utah Jazz. So with the Magic, it's okay, this is going to potentially be a playoff team. We don't know what kind of playoff team they're going to be. Currently five games over 500, but they're, you know, they, they have some good moments. They have some bad ones. And when they've been healthy, they've been really interesting. And then for the Jazz, they traded away two rotation players for, am I forgetting somebody? Zero rotation players? Um, in the, but they got a first round pick, of course, in the, um, well, they, they traded away arguably three because Fonte- Fontecchio, Kelly Olinick, and Abaji. Abaji's role was a little bit, a little bit confusing. But, does what does that mean? Are they what does that mean for the team? I, I mean, I think Will Hardy's one hell of a coach. Um, they lost to the Warriors on Monday night. Eventually, by twenty two, was closer at some points earlier before the fourth quarter. But are is this like the Taylor Hendricks not show? But like, is it is it to really showcase those kind of guys to to give maybe Keontae George a little bit more, or is it to kind of see like just to get a, kind of get a sense of where this overall team is? Yeah. Um... I think they're going to be younger and worse in ways that make them interesting, but far less good. Um, <laughs> sure, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think they they needed those veterans they traded away to play decent sized roles. I think that was a decent part of them being good. Um, do you, do you, oh, quickly, do you think? Yeah. Do you think there's a real chance that they keep their pick? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think these trades signify that they're going to go for it. And uh, Keontae George is a very typical uh, promising rookie young point guard in that he's really bad. Uh, is he? Yeah, I see super potential. He does a lot of interesting things, but r- right now he's just really out of control. And so, if you want to, if you want to get bad, you have a real easy path. Since we're on the topic of pick protection, so basically the Jazz. Really, if you if you assume every team above them is going to win more games than them, which is reasonable depending on injuries, then they really only need one of the Rockets, Hawks, or Nets to pass them to get to the 10th worst record. And at 10, it's very different than at like 5 because it's a lot less likely that a team passes you. It's possible. It's a lot less likely. And speaking of pick protection, the other one... I don't know that it's going to be that I'm watching like all of their games with rapid attention, like I, we were talking about with these other teams. I think there's like the, the the dynamic that we're going to see late in the season, like the possibility that the Raptors keep their pick, the Pirtle, the Pirtle pick. It's only top six protected, and there are four unbelievably bad teams in the league right now. So they probably have to get to five based on the odds to feel comfortable about it. But part of it for the Raptors is they've, they've had some health issues and they have some some fit stuff and everything else is I think they're not going to lean into that for a while. It's just going to be can they kind of because they've been getting crushed by some teams. It's just like, are they are they going to do it kind of by not by accident because that that understates the role that the role that the trades they made played in it. But like they might just lose enough games that they're waiting on the Blazers and maybe the Grizzlies to win a couple and see if they can pass them. Yeah, I think Memphis is is the one you could catch. I'd be surprised if they got to Portland. It's possible. Um, I don't think the Grizzlies are are super motivated to win the rest of the year. It's it, beyond anything organizationally. It's just real depressing when you thought, hey, we you know we could make some noise in the playoffs, and it turns out for different reasons we're just terrible. I I don't expect max effort from the Grizzlies the rest of the way. I wonder how organizationally they're going to respond to this year because there is the like the Sean Elliott kind of idea there of like we were bad for it for a surprising disturbing uh, d- like 
surprising in a way. I mean, we knew the job at the suspension, but we didn't know about the subsequent injury. Reason, we should make the most of this, like, organizationally, like, we should, and I mean, they, some of the best players are hurt right now, so, like, it would be kind of easy for them to do the idea that OKC did last year, which is basically whenever somebody's out, just give them an extra couple of games. But it's also, as you said, really depressing. And the idea of maybe putting on a little bit of a run if they get Bain and they get Marcus Smart back towards the end of the year, just being like, okay, this isn't a totally lost year. We can evaluate how some of these guys fit together, even if we're not going to trade any of them this summer. I could see both of those paths being open to them. And we've never gotten the opportunity to see what this or what this group, Taylor Jenkins and Clyman and everyone else, how they would respond this sort of a, a hit. Yeah, I, I definitely get the sense they're, they're saying let's maximize the opportunity for a high draft pick and we'll pick it up next year. Yeah, I mean, it would take – so re- as we're recording this, the Raptors are currently one game – the Grizzlies have one more loss and and one one fewer win than the Raptors do. So it might take a lot for the Raptors to pass them, but I do think it's possible. I just I'm just not sure. Agreed. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. Anything else you want to mention or discuss? What do you think of Deshaun Foster? I always am a little bit queasy about a first-time head coach getting a, a big job. How big a job UCLA is, we'll have to see. But he does seem popular, and of course, he's a name in the region. So if he can recruit, and I mean, it's it's definitely. I mean, especially with going into the big going into the Big Ten, like it is a very significant risk. But I also don't think that UCLA at this point was going to get you know, like a premium coach, and could they identify the, like, next great young coach? Uh, they haven't done a great job of that in the past. <laughs> All fair. Should, I I guess, should I be worried about uh, Chip Kelly, Ohio State offensive coordinator? I think it would take a few years for all that to happen. I mean, I haven't, I, I mean, admittedly haven't watched a ton of UCLA football over the last couple of years, especially becoming a, becoming a parent. But I haven't seen... Like, I mean, for example, like this past year, like UCLA's defense was phenomenal mm-hmm. and their offense, they got a couple of losses just because they couldn't like get a couple of first downs. Mm-hmm. And some of that is te- talent drained and, you know, certain guys going pro and everything like that. But if to me, if Chip Kelly was still that level, because remember, he's the coach, it's not like he's even the offensive coordinator, then they would have been, they wouldn't have, the, the bar was low and they were under the bar. Like, so yeah. I'm not, and, and Ohio State, they have easier life recruiting and everything like that, which is incredible when you consider everything else. So I I don't think as a, as a Michigan fan that you should be that scared, but maybe the marriage of Kelly and Day works out well from a, that, that with more talent that looks better. I heard that. I heard that little subtle thing that you said where you're you basically said, how the heck does Ohio State recruit better than UCLA when you have to go live in Columbus, Ohio, as opposed to Los Angeles? That's what yeah. you said. I heard it. It, it, it was there. I, no I, I, dis- did, I didn't no necessarily make it subtle. I, I spent four years there, and I've been surprised that I haven't spent another four. But <laughs> that, that's the way it goes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work as the Daily Dunks, primarily on Dunked on Prime. He does phenomenal work. It is something that I read absolutely every single day. And his distillation, his read on on the news. And of course, he's a wonderful analyst as well. So you can check all that out with Dunked on Prime. Love having him on. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can 
subscribe, download every episode. We really appreciate that, whatever podcast player you use. And importantly, if Real GM Radio is not on a podcast player that you want it to be on, let me know. And I will pass it along to people who can actually solve that problem, as opposed to me. I can just badger them into hopefully doing it. So we can helpfully make that happen. Generally, that is something that we can do. You can also help other people find the show. That is by leaving a rating and review in the aforementioned podcast player or word of mouth or social media. All of that is greatly appreciated. You can also check out my other work. I've written a couple of different pieces for The Athletic, including my team-by-team cap space preview for 2024. We now have significantly more clarity on that after the deadline than we did before, though naturally things will change between now and then. Also, of course, Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, where you get not only the podcast that Nate and I do, but the podcast that Nate does with John Hollinger, and excellent written work from Dan Feldman and Seth Partnow, and it is a growing media enterprise, and I I really am proud to be a part of it, and it's such a thrill. And then the NBA Strategy Stream, the show that Nate and I do with League Pass, that will be back after the All-Star break. I believe it's Monday, February 22nd is the date that we will be back. Still firming up the game that we're going to do on that date. I will, of course, mention that in a future podcast. And as always, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. And I'm not the greatest at replying, especially right now. I am traveling, but I do read it, and that's why I consider it more that rather than like a conversation or something like that. But plenty of rambling now. Um, I will be back next week, of course. And thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.